Tony had so many close friends and I would speak to them and you could tell they still had that complex where they idolized him so greatly they could not see through what was really happening. And a point we tried to make in this book that I hope tech companies will get across of all sizes is we've got to stop putting these people on pedestals. People like Tony Shea. Tony Shea was a legendary entrepreneur. He built Zappos and sold the online shoe retailer to Amazon for $1.2 billion in 2009. He was known for unusual experiments in management and business structure and for pursuing long-term passions over short-term profits, as described in his 2010 book, Delivering Happiness. A new book, Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea, tells the rest of the story of his life, leading up to his tragic death from injuries sustained in a fire in New London, Connecticut in November 2020. The book also goes behind the scenes of the company's relationship with Amazon. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Wall Street Journal reporter Kirsten Grind, who wrote the new book with her colleague Catherine Sayer, joins me on this episode of the GeekWire podcast to talk about what they discovered in writing the book and what the rest of us can learn from Tony Shea's life. Kirsten Grind, thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Before we jump into your book, I sat next to you for a few months at least at the offices of the Business Journal here in Seattle back in the days when you were covering Washington Mutual. I learned so much just overhearing your phone calls. So it's such a thrill to be able to read this book that you've written and follow your coverage in the journal. Oh, Todd, thank you so much. But please, we had so much fun at the Business Journal. It was the best time for sure. So I was so glad to meet you there too. This book, Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Tony Shea, dives into not just the tragic end of Tony Shea's life, but really the difficult final chapter you and your co-author, Catherine Sayer, bring to light things that people did not know about Tony, and as we can talk about later, that people at Amazon, which owns Zappos, did not know about Tony Shea. Both of you are very careful to link to resources, mental health resources, and we'll do the same in the show notes on this podcast in that same spirit. What did you learn about Tony Shea in the process of writing this book that you did not know before? There was so much to learn about Tony. He was so giving and so charismatic, and so many people loved him. He was the CEO of Zappos. He was this Las Vegas developer. He was always throwing these huge parties. He was always giving back to people. On the surface, his life in his mid-40s looked amazing, and, and he was very successful. But as we started peeling back these layers over time of researching his life, we just learned that actually, despite his focus on happiness, he had written this best-selling book, Delivering Happiness. He was struggling with all these mental health issues, social anxiety. He had some facial blindness, which if you think about that, can be very challenging, especially for a CEO that's always around people. And he hid all of this that came out in the form of alcohol abuse over the years. And in his last year, 
drug abuse. And so all of this stuff was really hidden from the public view. And that's what we kind of spent all this time uncovering. The book is fascinating in part because of the different characters that surrounded Tony throughout his life, frankly. Ali Partovi from the Seattle area, the twin brother of Hadi Partovi. Many folks here know the Partovi brothers. They were early in Tony Shea's career, very influential figures in his early startup. But at the same time, in the final year or so of Tony's life, it feels like he was surrounded by people who were not always acting in his best interest. Is is that a fair way to put it? That's a fair and very nice way to put it. <laughs> um, they. Um, you know, some of these people were just honestly straight up enabling him because in the last year of his life at this point, he was basically a billionaire, at least on paper. He had a huge fortune. He'd had a successful career at Zappos. He was trying to build this new sort of utopian art venture in Park City, Utah. And he had attracted all these people. Listen, Tony Shea, his entire life was always attracting people. People were so attracted to him. But because of the pandemic, which was isolating his very good friends from him, his true friends, he had a group of hangers on and friends that weren't really friends. And all of them were clamoring for a piece of Tony and a piece of his business and these high salaries he was offering to pay and consultant fees and money here and there. And including even in some respect, one of his own brothers who was living there at the time. So it just was really tragic how this history of him attracting people from all walks of life and giving to them selflessly ended up in this situation at the end. One of the figures that was a huge surprise to me was Jewel, the singer-songwriter, who was frankly the closest thing it seems, to a saving grace in the final years of Tony Shea's life. If anybody was going to turn this thing around, it would have been Jewel, as I read it. Oh, I know. And that is such a heartbreaking story because she came literally within days of saving his life in November 2020. Him and Jewel, and by the way, I am such a huge fan of Jewel because I grew up in San Diego where she started playing coffee shops as a homeless folk singer. So that was like my local coffee shop. Um, but her and Tony just really clicked on so many levels over the years. And they were such good friends. She hadn't seen him in months since he moved to Park City to do this new thing. You know, the pandemic, all of this, she kind of shows up and is like, what the heck? Tony at this point is addicted, you could say, to nitrous oxide or whippets. He's very skinny. He, he's he been on this new kind of biohacking diet. He's not making any sense. And she's just astounded by the state of her good friend. She tries, she's trying behind the scenes to work with his family members to stage an intervention. And they get so close, again, within days of when Tony ends up in the shed by himself and then gets caught in a fire. And he later dies from injuries from that fire, but she almost was able to do it. Your reporting in this book is remarkable in a number of different ways. Uh, both you and Catherine Sayer dug into different aspects of Tony's life, not only by talking with 
people who were around him at the time, but for example, by looking at post-it notes that were on the walls (laughs) at the home in Park City. And also you, I believe, were able to see the surveillance video of the house fire, which was reported as a house fire at the time in Connecticut, but actually was a shed in the back of the house. What did you learn about the final days, the final hours of Tony Shea's life through the process of your reporting? So we were really lucky. Um, We had sources that were able to take photos of his huge mansion in Park City, which was known as the ranch. And Tony was very into putting everything on sticky notes. So many of his actual employment agreements were written on sticky notes. So we were able to look at much of that as well as, um, as you mentioned, Todd, the police footage. And I actually went to New London, Connecticut, where he died from injuries in that shed fire. And the local firefighters were so generous. They drove me around. They let me look through their reports. They explained everything that they had gone through to investigate what happened in the fire. And the truth of it is, it's still inconclusive because he was the only one in that shed. He was in New London visiting his girlfriend with a bunch of employees, but they weren't in the shed with him. He was alone in the shed with nitrous, with weed, with various other things that could have caught fire. And so one agency is ruled as death accidental. The firefighters, the fire department were never able to get to exactly to the bottom of what happened. It certainly feels, from my reading of the book, like, if not purposeful, at least personally negligent on his part and on the part of the people around him if he did not have his own faculties about him to prevent himself from being caught in this fire. It, it seems like it was a, a situation that was set up for failure in many ways. It definitely was, 100%. And this is just such an unusual situation. And even the fire department makes note of this. In their later report, they say, all these employees of this billionaire were just kind of walking back and forth on this very cold East Coast night, bringing their benefactor drugs in a shed. And it just all seemed very normal. And what that speaks to is how normalized all of this craziness had become over the months before he died. And this is what Jewel saw, right? When she walked into the to his mansion, she didn't think, oh my gosh, here's this, here's this brilliant man with all his ideas on sticky notes and you know he's going to save the world. She thought, oh my God, he needs help right the second, not later. But yet he was surrounded by people who felt that he was just a very creative person that was going to eventually get better and maybe save the world. That's such a fascinating point because in tech, especially leaders such as Steve Jobs and others are famous for their reality distortion field. And to some extent, that can be a useful tool to create common culture and shared habits that lead to long-term success in a company. But it can also as in this case, take a different turn where I hesitate to use the word cult, but it starts to feel like everybody's invested in this 
process and this culture that is not ultimately in the best interest of the people involved. And I know we're getting into so many of the details of the investigation, and, and rather than making this a true crime podcast, I'm really curious, <laughs> are, are there bigger takeaways here for how to create a, a healthy culture and avoid some of the pitfalls that Tony and, and his colleagues fell into? It's so interesting, Todd, because I was brought in, my role at the journal is I often come into a breaking story that requires more investigation. So I came into Tony Shea's life, unfortunately, after he died. So when Catherine and I were going back to research his big, for example, Las Vegas development plans, because he's also well known for pouring 350 million into this like dusty corner of Las Vegas that no one cares about. Some of the stories we would hear from like 2010 through 2014 weren't that much different from the stories in his last year in Park City. And I spent a lot of time thinking to myself, what was the difference? He was coming up with crazy ideas on sticky notes back then, right? And those ideas came to fruition. Like he did redevelop downtown Las Vegas. It's awesome. You all should go visit it. There's a giant praying mantis sculpture <laughs> shooting fire out of its antennas. But the difference was this reality distortion field, right? That you mentioned, the people around him were able to ignore the growing drug abuse because of that earlier history in some cases. He kept telling people, I am in a metamorphosis. And the last stage is sobriety. And if you're a friend of Tony's, you're thinking, he did this before. It's going to be okay. He's going to come through. And us looking at it now, it's clear to see that these people were dealing with an addict and they didn't know how to properly deal with someone suffering from these kind of mental health issues and substance abuse problems. So that's a long way of saying they just were able to normalize a lot of that. What about Amazon? That's coming up next. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Amazon acquired Zappos in 2009, and it was an early example in the tech industry of a new approach, or at least a different approach, where a company that acquired a startup kept that startup relatively at arm's length and allowed them to operate autonomously. That was one of the big points that Jeff Bezos made when he went down and recorded that now iconic video. It's kind of the you do you era of tech acquisitions that this kicked off, right? <laughs> yes. And you could look at this and say, well, Zappos has gone on and succeeded. And ultimately, Tony Shea handed the reins over to others to lead. But at the same time, it's clear from your reporting on the book that Amazon had no idea what was going on in the final years of Tony Shea's life? No, they they didn't. What was clear, though, that also was a discovery to us is 
they were starting to exert way more pressure on Zappos than anyone knew about. Bezos had given them 10 years. So now we're in 2019, right? And Tony's in the middle of all these management experiments. He's introduced telocracy, which is this flat management structure where there's no bosses. He's, he's trying out all these things. That's what he's known for. But what Amazon wants is money. <laughs> so the Zappos was starting to not meet its profit targets, its growth targets. Tony does not like financial reports. That's not his thing. You know, he would try and sort of like stuff those dry reports with like details about his latest management experiment. And so Amazon, Jeff Wilkie, who was one of Bezos' lieutenants at the time, is who Tony reported to. And he was, he was beginning to put pressure on Tony and Tony was stressing. This, I think, is also what I think was a factor in him increasing his drug use during that time because he felt like he needed the next billion dollar idea. He needed to somehow make the money for Amazon while also coming up with an original way to do that. All of this was going on and Zappos was on its own in Las Vegas. And so they just didn't quite know how bad it had gotten with Tony until he actually had somewhat of a breakdown on the phone with Jeff Wilkie um, around the summer of 2020. And then they realized and they put him on a temporary leave. Jeff Wilkie, GeekWire podcast listeners will remember, has since left the company. We talked to him last year about his new focus on reviving the American manufacturing sector, yes. which is <laughs> fascinating. And I've always appreciated talking with Jeff Wilkie and interviewing him, but I have to say, I can project myself into the shoes of an entrepreneur reporting to him, oh boy. I would yeah. not want to run afoul of him. I would do everything I possibly could to meet the targets that he and let alone Jeff Bezos set for me to hit in my business. I can imagine that was an immense amount of pressure. Definitely. It was a huge amount of pressure. And it wasn't what Tony cared about is the thing. At this point, he has an enormous amount of money. He's not like in it for the money. Here's someone who truly believes in workplace happiness. I think that whole situation was so hard. And honestly, I found myself thinking about Amazon's situation or Zappos. What do you do when you have an executive and it comes to light that they are suffering from some sort of mental health or drug issue and they're as popular as Tony Shea? We didn't get into this too much, but I can only imagine the frantic meetings they must have been having about this. Because on the one hand, you want to make sure that this person gets on solid footing. You also don't want to do something that undermines their ability to return or be stable long term by creating some kind of PR crisis around it inadvertently. I, I could see where it would be a real dilemma. It's a real problem. And honestly, the public, the publicity of it, they must have just been fearing enormously because already... There was a lot of speculation about what was going on with Tony. He had suddenly moved out of Las Vegas after 20 years, was living in Park City, Utah, buying all these properties. It just not explaining what was going on. This was during the pandemic. He was kind of MIA from Zappos. 
already that was sort of starting to bubble up. And interestingly, he was briefly in rehab in early 2020. And the way one of his friends was able to get him there was to say, listen, if Zappos or Amazon finds this out, they're going to make you go and it's going to be all over the news and you're not going to be able to control the message. And that sort of convince Tony, okay, you're right. Like I need to do this on my own terms. Of course, he only stayed like 13 days, but <laughs> he went. It was voluntary and he left early, right. as you make clear exactly. in the book. Are there any lessons to be taken from this arm's length approach that many tech companies are taking? And I realized that that might be a stretch because this was a unique situation. Tony was a unique person in a, in a difficult circumstance. But was it smart to just give them a 10-year runway and, and let them go and then come back around and say, okay, now you got to come in and pay the piper? I mean, I feel like no. The thing that I'm really hoping, because I, I mean, I'm covering all kinds of tech companies out here in San Francisco, like Jack Dorsey, like all these personalities, and the thing that I think and a point we tried to make in this book was that I hope tech companies will get across of all sizes is we've got to stop putting these people on pedestals. People like Tony Shea. You saw what happened to this guy. I mean, he was like a rock star by the time he died. It's like, why are we idolizing these people to this extent? I mean, I feel the same way about some of these other personalities like Twitter's former CEO, Jack Dorsey. We're always talking about all the biohacking he's doing and all of this. Is that good? To build on that, another great example, frankly, is Bill Gates and the way yes. that he was put up on a pedestal for much of his career, certainly much of it deserved based on what he was able to do at Microsoft. But as your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal have reported and also the New York Times, there was much more going on behind the scenes in Bill Gates's personal life and inappropriate things happening at Microsoft related to his personal life throughout. There's this kind of fog that is put around yes, these folks. Exactly. What was so interesting about this book is I felt like I was witnessing that almost in real time because Tony had so many close friends. I mean, hundreds of people who would consider to be his close friends. And I would speak to them and you could tell they still had that complex where they idolized him so greatly, they could not see through what was really happening, you know? And it almost wasn't their fault. It was like they had been too close to the sun and they couldn't like step back and see what was really going on, you know? And uh, even over the course of reporting, some of them kind of were coming away from that and you could see, oh my gosh. Like this person really wasn't that like God figure that we had put him out to be. And Bill Gates is such a good example for sure. Up next, larger lessons from this story. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. 
What other kinds of takeaways would you hope people would walk away with from the story of Tony Shea as you came to understand and report it in your book? The hugest thing I think Catherine and I are hoping for is it's sort of become a buzzword now, but in, in truth, we need to be talking more about mental health issues. I mean, really, especially among entrepreneurs and high performing people where it's just so stigmatized, even to be able to step back and say, I need a vacation. If this, if this product is delayed, then it's going to be delayed. That's what we're really hoping people will take away that Tony's story isn't just the heartbreaking story of, you know, one man who died. It's really a warning to everyone that this is an important part that you have to think about yourself. It can't just be about the startup. It can't be about giving to others and all of this. I spent some time at Tony's rehab facility in Utah talking with the folks at Cirque Lodge which is this like rehab facility that's known for celebrities, but they take in a lot of people. And all they do is talk to like CEOs and YouTube influencers and startup founders. And no one feels like they can stop. The pressure is so great. You have to just go, 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 go. And the message I think that we hope people take away is like, you need to stop and, and look at yourself. You mentioned earlier that because of the nature of your role at the Wall Street Journal, you aren't necessarily covering companies like Zappos day to day, but you'll often right. come in on a breaking story that needs more investigation. So you didn't get a chance to talk to Tony. What would you, if you could go in a time machine, ask him in the last one to two years of his life, had you been able to witness what was happening in Park City? And is there anything you would have asked him in your role as a reporter, which is tough because- you can't openly challenge, well, you can challenge what he's doing, but you can't try and point him in a new direction. But I'm, I'm curious, how would you have interacted or, or what would you have asked him? That is such a good question. I think it would have been really hard for any reporter, including me, to show up in Park City where he's building this new sort of utopia. You know, he's had so much business success. He has tons of people moving in. He has this new mansion. He has all these connections. Actors are flying in, government dignitaries. I think it would have been hard for me, to be honest, to see through that. I think that what I would have wanted to get him to talk about, though, is what he really hoped to achieve. Because he kept telling everyone he wanted to solve world peace. Well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, he's not the first tech executive to say something like that. I would have wanted to know exactly how he plans to do that, right? Like, what are the steps that you're taking? And what are all these people doing here, actually, instead of just, you know, taking your money and wandering around with their side projects? But I think anyone going in at that time might have been impressed, honestly, depending on what time of the day you saw him. <laughs> One other question. I'm really curious, thinking back to the process of reporting that you were doing back in the day, on the phone, maybe some email, in-person meetings, can you reflect on how your process as a journalist has changed over the last 15, 20 years, and how your process played out in this book and the 
act of gathering facts and doing interviews for this book. What's changed? How did the pandemic change things? And how has technology changed things? I'm really curious about your your just journalistic approach. So I think I was always trained as a journalist that in-person is the best, right? We're all taught that. If you can get an in-person meeting, especially for a long project like a book, that's the best thing. Well, the pandemic completely changed that. You would not believe it, but I have actually not met live many of the people I spent hours and hours on the phone with for this book. And that was really hard for, I think, on all ends. I mean, I remember one night I was on the phone with someone for four hours and we were actually drinking on the phone because it was like 10 at night. It's different the way you talk live versus a phone call. And none of these people wanted to do Zoom. Everyone's sick of Zoom. So I really had to change how I talk on the phone. And another thing, Todd, I'm sure you've run into this. In the tech world, sometimes people don't even want to do the phone. They just want to be on Signal or they want to be on WhatsApp. And you're really taught, well, you can't ever just have a conversation with someone texting over Signal. Like, who does that? Well, I had to learn to do that. I mean, honestly, one of my best sources who I've still never met, who helped me understand for the initial Wall Street Journal stories, how Tony died, was only ever on Signal. And that was really hard. I sort of took extra steps to verify that the source was legitimate because of that. But you have to meet people where they're comfortable. And that's something I really had to learn for this book, for sure. Do you think that those habits and those approaches have changed permanently? Or will we get back to a point where somebody such as yourself working on an in-depth book will be meeting more in person than you did, for example, for this book? I I hope we get back to meeting more people. I mean, I was able to do some meetings. For example, I like I said, I traveled to New London and meet, you know, went on tours with the firefighters and went to the rehabilitation facility. It just gives you more texture. And just there's just little things that you can't ever replicate when you're on the phone or when you're on a text message chain or something like that. So I do really hope we get back to that. But I also am, especially in the tech world where people so much prefer some other form of communication, I've just kind of learned to accept it. Well, it's fascinating because I don't think I would have recognized from the book that you were not in many of these places interviewing these people. So clearly you were able to be resourceful to find photos and other things because there's descriptions of the scene and the sticky notes. So you must have just had to work harder to get visual details. I was super lucky and Catherine as well. I mean, as you know, Todd, this isn't my first book. So I think if it was, I would have had a much harder time. But knowing now what kind of goes in to a scene and what you need, I could ask people on the phone exactly what I needed, you know, and we could get around ways like asking people for video or, you know, we were lucky with a lot of public records requests, body cam footage from the police, both in Park City and in New London really helped us out. So just ways you can kind of get around it. We both did go to Park City and drove by the mansion and some of the other locations to build that out. But yeah, there's ways you can get around that when you have to, unfortunately. I know you were not bringing this up 
for this reason. But I did actually plan to give your prior book a plug because oh. I know it will be of, of interest to many people in the Seattle region. The Lost Bank, the story of Washington Mutual, a beloved brand in the Seattle region in Washington state that went away in the financial crisis. And you tell the behind the scenes story of how that bank was lost. It's really a fascinating book as well. So highly recommended. I've now read two of your books. <laughs> oh, Todd, thank you so much. I'm two behind. So you better get going, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get to work. <laughs> Kirsten Grind is the author with Catherine Sayer of Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO, Tony Shea. Kirsten, thanks very much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO, Tony Shea by Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer is published by Simon & Schuster and available wherever books are sold. Kurt Milton edited this episode. Daniel L.K. Caldwell wrote our theme music. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.